0: Lord, be our vision. Be the one that allows us to see your righteousness, your wonder, the riches of your word. God, let us not heed man's empty praise, but instead seek to please you, our God and King forever and ever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today is a fun sermon title. I don't know if you can read it, but it's called "How Not to Destroy a Church." Um, I really wrestled with how to title this one. Uh, as I normally, I just try and pick words from the text. Uh, so, like, you'll see words like "sinner" and "repent." And, no, I'm just kidding. But, but, uh, <laughs> but. Um, Today we're going to be looking, uh, looking at Galatians, um, but I wanna, I wanna point out that it, it, it's rare that a church is destroyed from the outside. It's very rare that a church is going to encounter opposition from the outside that closes its doors. Um, sometimes you find churches that are persecuted, but what you find most often is that churches that are persecuted scatter and regroup somewhere else, and then the gospel, by, by, by the wonder of the gospel, it grows in the midst of the persecution. Outside persecution grows the church. So uh, it, was, it was Tertullian, a, 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 an ancient church father, who once said, it's, it, uh, by the blood of the martyr, the church grows because that's what happened. As as Christians were being persecuted and killed, the Romans, uh, well, we can say the Romans, just in general, people saw these Christians being persecuted and they were like, why? Why are they so devoted to this Jesus? And then they would go seek out other Christians and they would hear the gospel. It was a witness. And that's what martyr actually means is witness. So it's rare that a church is destroyed from the outside. Um, and when I say a church, what I mean by that is a body of believers, okay? The, the, the church is the people, not the steeple, okay? <laughs> the building is not the church. I, when, when I, my kids go crazy about how often I say this, but I say, I'm going to the church building. And sometimes they'll correct me and say, you mean the church? And I'll say, no, there's no one else there. It's the church building because the church is the people, not the steeple. So when I say the church, uh, I, I want you to, in your mind, know that I'm talking about a gathered body of believers uh, that exists to glorify God and spread the gospel, okay? That's, that's my quick definition. So, uh, so a church is rarely destroyed from the outside, but most often you see a church destroyed from the inside out. You see cancers grow and, uh, and begin to destroy what God has built. You see things like rebellion against leadership or gossip or divisive individuals that invade and start taking control. You see unbiblical teachings. You see people with a lack of grace for one another. You see a lack of church discipline. Things like that. That's what destroys the church. And usually, all these things lead to a slow and painful destruction of a church. If you guys are podcasters, uh, I, I, I recommend listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a podcast that came out uh, about a year and a half ago now. But it talks about how Mars Hill Church in Seattle grew to massive prominence, but it had a cancer. And that cancer began to infect and destroy the church. And it it was so bad that at one point, they had 27 sites. And the next morning, there was no more Mars Hill. So you had 27 congregations that show up to church. Their pastors don't know what to do. Their elders have no idea what's happening. And the congregation was just lost. So. Churches suffer uh, from slow and painful destruction of those things and more, right? But the reality is that churches, uh, more than any other human institution, and I say that just kind of saying it a little tongue in cheek, the church is not a human institution, but it looks like a human institution. But more than any institution on earth, churches are actually more prone to inject themselves with snake venom more prone to amputate their limbs by gnawing on them with their mouths than anything else. See, churches that suffer from destruction have a tendency to have devoured themselves from within, and this is nothing new. Actually, if you pick up your New Testament and you read basically every single letter to every single church, you find these dysfunctional churches that have some disease infecting them, and, and Paul or Peter or John needs to write to them to say, hey, guys, stop it. <laughs> let me remind you what the gospel is. Let me remind you of what it is to be a community driven by the gospel. Let me remind you the effect that the gospel is supposed to have on your lives. Like the Corinthians, stop getting drunk, let the poor have communion. That's actually 1 Corinthians. (laughs) So, um, but, but, You know, churches are supposed to be an outpost of true worship, as communities knit together by the gospel, and they should be the most loving places on earth. But go talk to any person scorned by a destructive church. Is that what they feel about the church? Do they say it was the most loving place? No. All churches find themselves at some point close to destruction, some more often than others. And it's because of how sin slithers its way within their, mar- their ranks. So we need the same reminders that the first century churches did. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we exegete scripture, which means to make known what's already there. Because frankly, there's nothing new under the sun. We are often as dumb as the first century church. And... Uh, we have not evolved. Anyway, but <laughs> we haven't come that far. I can use this, right? This is, this is a computer. It's an incredible work of technology, but I will still gossip and slander my neighbor uh, just like somebody in, the, in, in Rome would have. So... Um, while I don't think we're on the precipice of destruction, that would be really sad. We literally just started a month ago gathering here. Um, I, I, but we are, we are at a point where our two congregations are merging, we're uniting. So uh, I want us to open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15. And we're going to see a remedy uh, to a poison that most churches suffer from. So, while you're opening your Bibles, a little background, the Galatian church, if, you, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, uh, the Galatian church was having a, a, a pretty clear struggle. Some men had um, invaded the church and started deceiving people that they had to, uh, the way that they lived out their faith, the way that they lived out the gospel was actually going back to the old ceremonial laws. And so Paul is being very clear Um, that that is not true. You are not required to do what the old covenant required you to do, specifically circumcision, okay? Circumcision, I'm not gonna explain. If you don't know what it is, Google it later. But it was a sign of the old covenant um, that males would get at a certain age to prove that they were of God. And it was often false. It was a false profession of faith. The signs of the Old Covenant have been replaced with the signs of the new, Paul is arguing, which include faith, repentance, evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul writes Galatians to argue against these legalists, these people that are, that are focusing on the law as the substance of their salvation, um, who have snuck into the church, who have deceived some elders and congregants, and were spreading a disease that needed some gospel medicine. Um, However, the text we're coming to uh, goes kind of on a flip side. Whenever you have an argument of law versus gospel, works versus freedom, right? Uh, There's another enemy of the gospel that starts rising up. And that gospel is called antinomianism. Okay, uh, right. There's a $10 word. Uh, <laughs> antinomianism is, is basically that there is no law. It's anti-law. It's against the law. So there's legalism on one side and then antinomianism on the other that says, yeah, there's no law. You can do whatever you want. Um, the, another way that the Scottish Presbyterians used to write about it was called licentionalism. And that's even harder to say than antinomianism. Basically, it's that you have a license to sin because Jesus paid for your sin. So Paul is going to argue about that in our text. Um, so uh, let's read Galatians 5, 13 through 15. Follow along in your Bibles with me. For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. A struggle that we all face, if we're faithful Bible readers, which I'm not going to make you hold up your hands, uh, but a struggle that we all face is how do we apply the commands of the Old Testament to today, right? If I were to crack open a Bible and open to Leviticus chapter 14 or 15, and I would read about what to do uh, with an ox, (laughs) um, I'd be like... So is that like my car? <laughs> is this a metaphor? Like so, um, so uh, theologians have helped us over the years to show us uh, this threefold division of the law. Right. There's the moral law. Right. This is how you should live. There's the civil law. This is how you need to act within this governing structure, and the ceremonial law. These are the religious uh, rites that you need to go through. Okay. So uh, so. The the civil and ceremonial laws no longer apply, okay? You don't need to slit a bull's throat to atone for your sin. Praise God. I'm not opening up something in the fellowship hall for us to do that. Um, So we don't need to do the ceremonial laws. And we don't need to do the civil laws either, although I really wish we had the year of jubilee. So, uh, which, which wipes out all your debt, so <laughs> that would be great. Uh, <laughs> so, um, actually, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna move on before I start sounding like a socialist when I'm a pure capitalist. Anyway, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but the, the moral law is still true. The, the ways that we're supposed to live in response to God's holiness, that is true. But commands like Exodus 21.35, when one man's ox butts another's another so it dies, uh, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Don't have to do it. There's, there's a little bit of wisdom in it, like just saying if your dog bites another neighbor's dog, you may want to look into getting the dog to stop biting people or biting dogs, um, but but like we're, that's not a command that we need to follow to the letter of the law. So the moral laws still apply, like the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure you all have memorized, right? Exodus 20, if you wanna review them later. Um, so, so within Christianity, there's a lot of room for freedom, but it's so easy for us to fall into legalism. And legalism ultimately is saying, okay, letter of the law plus. Okay, legalism is we is is uh, is like the Galatians faced where it's like, okay, you need to follow the Old Testament Jewish rites and principles. And if you don't get circumcised, you're not a Christian, dude. Right. So legalism is always is always the moral law plus. And one example that we we in our especially Baptist culture face uh, is that it is not ever recorded in Scripture that it's a sin to drink. It is a sin to get drunk. So how many drinks can you have before you get drunk? How close to that do you want to walk? Like, uh, but if somebody cracks out a bottle of wine, right, it's, you know, I'm not, it's, it's not something that I'm going to beat someone over the head. You know, you're sinning, right? Because it's not sin to drink. A glass of wine ain't going gonna, ain't gonna to strip away your salvation. Now, I personally don't drink. I'm what's called a teetotaler. It's for different reasons. But I'm not going to impose my moral law on you. That is not what the Bible calls us to. So when we read Galatians 5, 13 to 15, we see, we, we see Paul uh, basically say that, that you're supposed to take your freedom and use it for love. You're not supposed to take your freedom and use it to sin. That's that antinomianism, right? Oh, Jesus paid for my sins, so therefore, it doesn't matter what I do, right? He paid, for, he paid my penalty of past sins, of present sins, of future sins. That's what Jesus died on the cross for. So, hey, you know what? I may as well just go to the local pub, and I may as well just drink my fill of beers, or I may as well just have 15 wives. You know, it doesn't matter because, because the, 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 there, there's no law. But Paul's saying, don't use your freedom for sin, Um, So what does Paul mean by flesh here, ultimately? Uh, One commentator summed it up really good for me. Flesh refers to fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing, right? That will that you have for yourself. Flesh is the arena of indulgence and self-assertion, the locale in which the ultimate sin reveals itself to be the false assumption of receiving life not as the gift of the Creator, but procuring it by one's own power, of living from oneself rather than from God. That was a lot. Thank you, biblical commentators. In short, the flesh here is talking about living for you, not for God. Pretending that life, your life is your own, not Christ that he bought and paid for with his own sacrificial death. So we have freedom in Christ. We're not required to follow the old civil and ceremonial laws. Then what are we free for, right? What are we supposed to be doing? So Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, right? In other words, you may be free to drink alcohol, but if you start being tempted to get drunk, uh, start drinking the whole bottle, right? You should probably dump the bottle out and throw it in the garbage. You need to battle the temptation. So you don't use your freedom to gratify uh, that instead, through love, serve one another, he says. Our freedom in Christ should free us from the love of ourselves, right? That, that self-will, that personal gratification, the pride of how amazing I am, going after sinful pursuits, it, that free us from the love of ourselves and fuel our desire to love others. The opposite of flesh is love. Love. Because love looks away from the self and its wishes or even its real needs and instead looks, looks to the neighbor and offers to spend its resources on their needs. The person who finds out that their neighbor is struggling and makes them dinner, even though their pantry is running a little low themselves, the person who finds out that their neighbor is suffering and decides to go over and mow their lawn for them. The person who, who also may have back pain. <laughs> the person who sacrifices of their self is loving their neighbor because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. That's the freedom that love brings. Isn't that a wonderful freedom? To not just care about me, but to care about you. So there's a paradox in Christian freedom, right? If we're to use our freedom to love others instead of loving our flesh and pursuing sin, um, what should we expect when we love others? We might be tempted to think that if we're to love our neighbors, or in this case, our fellow church members, in order to gain their love and affection, we're going in the wrong way you ever done that have you ever have you ever said to a friend or a kid like hey i've done all these things for you why can't you just do this one thing for me that's love misplaced i know everybody goes oof <laughs> that is love misplaced that's not self-sacrificing love we may also be tempted to think that if we uh if we love others we'll gain god's approval and he'll do more stuff for us no that's love misplaced as well Instead, a Christian serves out of love, not for love. Does that make sense? Um, the, the reformer Martin Luther, which, by the way, it's Reformation month. Uh, that's, that's straight up my favorite month of the year. October is my favorite month, and people think I'm like a weirdo. Like, oh, you're like... You know, Tim Burton movies. No, not really. Uh, No, I I love it because it's Reformation Month. October 31st, man, Martin Luther pounding those 95 theses on the Wittenborg castle door. And I love it. I love it. Which, by the way, he didn't do that. He actually gave it to the custodian and the custodian like taped it. Anyway, so <laughs> all those pictures of the, the German monk with the hammer, they're historically inaccurate, but we'll just, we'll just pretend that it's hammer time, okay? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, but, uh, but as Martin Luther put it, for that paradox, right? A Christian is free and independent in every respect, a bondservant to none. A Christian is a dutiful servant in every respect, owing a duty to everyone. (laughs) That's what a Christian does. A Christian loves because he knows that Jesus died for him or her. And so therefore, he or she can live out of that love and care for others. We are slaves to nobody. Because Christ has set us free, He is our true master. Yet Paul writes in Galatians 3:13 that we are to serve one another, or I'm sorry, 5:13. Um, when, when we read the word "serve" in Galatians 5:13, what we actually see is the word "slave." We are to enslave ourselves to one another. That's how you don't destroy a church. You pledge yourself to the service of those around you instead of the service, instead of pledging everyone else to the service of you. Why do we do this? Well, as Paul put it, we fulfill the whole moral law, the whole law, right? By loving our neighbors as ourselves. Ain't nobody more neighborly than the church. You may not live near each other, but you may not even be sitting near each other. But frankly, to love and serve one another is to glorify God who who loved you and served himself up for you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Same word, slave. I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. So that's in the context of evangelism. But in the context of the church, Paul writes Romans thirteen eight through 10. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Did you know that? Did you know that you owe love to one another? That's part of being a Christian in a church. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Loving our neighbors within the church actually proves our love of God. Uh, John Calvin said this, God is invisible, but he represents himself to us in the brethren and in their persons demands what is due to himself. Love to men springs only from the fear and love of God. Another commentator said this, though we ought to stand fast in our Christian liberty, yet we should not insist upon it as the breach of Christian charity. We should not use it as an occasion of strife and contention with our fellow Christians who may be differently minded from us, maybe, Uh, (laughs) but should always maintain such a temper towards each other as may dispose us by love to serve one another. Listen, if you're so angry at me, which hasn't happened yet, but it will, just trust me, if you're so angry at me that you completely are unwilling to care for me in a little way, you are not showing love of God. But to be frustrated with me, which again is going to happen if it hasn't happened already, but to be frustrated with me and still willing to come up and say, hey, I care for you, brother. Let me show you love. That is the Christ-like humility, the the proving of salvation that is necessary for every Christian. Um, There's also a warning in these verses that we should really pay very close attention to and I think that it's a word play that Paul uses that should really capture our attention and make us go "Ooh!" it's the reality of what happens when wars begin within the ranks of church folk look at verse 15 again in your Bibles if you got them open and I want you to think about these words listen to them but contrasting right as in opposition to when you love each other but if you bite and devour one another watch out that you are not consumed by one another let that sink in if you are devouring others you too are going to be devoured by others The words that Paul uses in the Greek are actually often used to describe wild animals. When Bite and devour are not very, you know, um, formal words. (laughs) They're animalistic. They're wild. They're awful. When we begin forgetting the grace that God has shown to us, and complaining about others for whom Christ died. We start acting like wild animals, don't we? We bite, we devour one another. And ultimately we're devouring ourselves. We're devouring, we are becoming the cancer that destroys churches. It's important to remember right now that sheep do bite. They do injure each other. It's not just wolves who have teeth. Sheep also have hooves. I have never been kicked by a sheep, nor would I like to be kicked by a sheep. I don't want to walk up to something that I revere as fluffy and soft and get nailed by it. (laughs) Therefore, remember that when we slander others in the church, we might be actually showing the true thorny condition of our own hearts more than we are pointing out the faults of others. On the other hand, divisive people do cause harm. There are divisive people who invade the church. That's why Galatians was written. So uh, we, we've all experienced this. Perhaps we've been part of it and we need to repent. But we, there, there's that biting and devouring. And I want you to think about those times that there have been strife within your own church, uh, within another community of faith, with even like a workplace where there's been strife. And ain't nobody free from the suffering. Paul describes what it looks like to be led by the flesh, to be uh, um, to be somebody that's not saved. Just a few verses later, Galatians 5:18. 8, oh, I can't talk. 5:18 through 21. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's quite a gamut of things, Paul. Thank you. Uh, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, all of us caught the first one and the last one. <laughs> but what about those in the middle? Listen to these. Listen, just listen to what Paul says, right? Enmity. Do you know what it means to, to cause enmity? It means, it means to create hostility or, or cause antagonism. How many churches have you been in where there's that one person that's like, man, I really hate that thing the pastor did. Uh, You should hate that thing too. Why don't you hate that thing? You should hate the pastor. Or strife. That's the next one. Strife, which means to create friction. Which means to maybe not straight out create hostility, but it means to just cause things to suffer. That's been me. I'm the naysayer, right? Anytime someone's like, I have a great idea. I'm like, here's five reasons why it's a bad idea. It never means that I'm against it. I'm just, I'm just a negative Nancy. I'm just thinking of all the things that could go wrong. We should get a bounce house. Gosh, we really need to figure out how to anchor that thing down. There's a lot of wind in that field. And also it's, it's, it's sloped. So we got to make sure we have it facing the right way. Like whatever the thing is, man, I will help you figure out why it's a bad idea but I also show up to help. (laughs) So the person who creates strife is showing showing the uh, being led by the flesh. Or the next one, jealousy. How many church splits have happened over jealousy? Or fits of anger. How many church business meetings have that one person, I have a point of contention. (laughs) Rivalries. Dissensions, divisions, envy. These are not just things that are lived out in the world. These are things lived out in the community of the gospel. And listen, you and I all struggle with these at different times, but the difference between somebody who's saved and not saved is when they are confronted or convicted about it. And they go, you know what, I do need to repent. I have been doing this thing. I have been destroying the church from inside, but I no longer wanna be a cancer, I wanna be an inoculation. I no longer wanna be the disease, I wanna be the cure. We all struggle with these at different times. And we all struggle with these in community. But Paul also gives us a flip side here. He doesn't just give us the works of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, he gives us the fruit of the Spirit, which, by the way, is not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit. When the Spirit is working in you, these are the things that come out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self Control against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Don't you want to be a part of a group of people that lives these things out? Wouldn't you, if you walked into a place that was filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, wouldn't it be the most loving place on earth? Whether it's a home and you have your unsaved neighbor come in and you reflect these things, or whether it's a church where you celebrate that these things are how we should live in community, not in isolation. Listen, if you are living out your joy and peace in isolation, you are not living the fruit of the Spirit. These are things that you live among the gospel community that you worship at. If these are lived out, then a church becomes a true gospel community. It's the most loving place on earth. It's an institution that will withstand assaults from outside and control the chaos that inevitably begins within. How do you not destroy a church? By sharing and showing the love of God within a congregation of people. By living out the gospel fruit of the Spirit among one another. Let me pray. Lord, we are prone to wander. <laughs> Your people are a wild bunch, Lord. We're, we're often some pretty wacky sheep. And myself, uh, I am not uh, immune from everything I just described. But God, I pray that we as a church would exhibit the fruit of the spirit that we would not bite or devour one another that we would serve one another out of the love that we have for you because God that love never ends but our care and compassion for one another fade they wane we get on each other's nerves Lord please strengthen us in these acts in Jesus' name Amen.